This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. This is episode 203, and I am sitting here live at the uh, Firestone Walker Propagator Brewery in Venice, California. And across from me is Sam Tierney, a brew house propagator brewery manager. Welcome to the podcast, Sam. Thanks, Jamie. I'm excited to be here. Wanted to have this conversation with Sam since he penned an article in our June-July lager issue on busting lager myths. Uh, it was uh, fun to have that in the magazine. Um, but Sam is uh, doing R&D like crazy down here for Firestone Walker and get brewing on a beautiful small-scale Casper Schultz fully automated system and one of the most beautiful small brewery uh, setups that I have seen in North America. And so, yes, you've got some fantastic tools at your disposal here at the propagator we're going to talk about uh, hazy ipa just because hey we can and it's a subject actually i haven't talked about much uh, so far this year mind haze is certainly blowing up for firestone walker and we're going to talk about some of the innovation process behind that we're going to talk about some of the uh the ways that firestone walker relates to hops um, i imagine we're probably going to talk a little bit about lager brewing in there too just because uh, it's something that uh, you know it's personal passion of course we've just been in our, our pre-interview here talking uh, about some uh, exciting kind of stuff and I'm, I'm, i think it'd be fun to delve into that uh and then we're yeah we're just going to cover the general process of innovation for uh you know for firestone walker and how these new beers get made and scaled up for such a large scale size brewery like firestone walker it's going to be fun uh before we do that our re- reminder our cbc party is september 9th 3 to 5 p.m thursday afternoon Beerstadt Lager House. Come on by. The Beerstadt beers are on us, and it would be fantastic to see all of you all. GD Chillers is born in the Pacific Northwest from a lot of hard work and a singular goal become the best damn chiller company in the world. Like you, GD never settles. They're relentless and strive to be better every single day because they take pride in the work they do. They're craftsmen who know that good enough just won't cut it. Visit GD Chillers at CBC Booth 3011. 3011 or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. This episode is also brought to you by BSG Hop Solutions. Meet the latest in the BSG Hop Solutions portfolio, sativa, strong expressions of stone fruit, floral, and resinous pine flavors and aromas define this blend crafted specifically for use in hazy IPAs and other hop-forward beers. Sativa is ideal for aroma, whirlpool, and dry hop additions to hazy and juicy IPAs or for any other hoppy styles where a combination of citrus, tropical fruit, and pine aromatics are desired. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more or call 1-800-374-2739. So Sam, let's talk about your arc through brewing. Um, catch me up on your history and uh, and what that looks like and the the steps of the, your professional career has taken to uh, to get you right here at the Propagator Brew House in Venice. I think I had a little bit of a different kind of trajectory initially than a lot of uh, brewers do. I kind of got into being a beer geek really hardcore right off the bat when I was really young. I was 20 years old and I had just kind of gotten interested in beer. Um, I was going to UC Santa Barbara, just north of here. And I just like, yeah, started trying different beers and was like, oh, beer isn't just this gross light thing. You know, I, we were used to 
the real low budget stuff, you know, that you would drink at college. And I tried some other things, you know, DBA was actually one of them from Firestone at the time. Um, you know, beers like fat tire or pyramid or Widmer, you know, that they kind of mid aughts stuff that was really common uh, in this area. Um, and then I studied abroad in Sweden, uh, that fall and that was 2007. And, um, you know, Sweden has this, uh, alcohol monopoly where you buy all the beer and it actually has a really good beer selection. And I kind of was like, wow, I don't really know any of these are, I guess I'll just start trying random things. I went to a bar with a friend. I went over there with a few friends from UC Santa Barbara and there was this beer that he told me to get called Chimay. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> and um, he's like, it's made by monks in Belgium. You got to try it. And then I just, my mind was blown. I had the flavors. It was incredible. So um, I went online and I looked it up and that led me to Ray Beer, Beer Advocate, all kinds of different stuff. I just, so I started kind of diving into researching beer. I was just so fascinated by it and everything. And um I hit it really hard. I went on a few trips over in Europe too. So we went to Oktoberfest uh, a couple weeks after that and got that whole experience going through Germany. And I was thinking, oh, if I'm going to travel around, I should log these. So I actually started rating the beers on, on Ray Beer and Beer Advocate too. <laughs> yeah. I uh, got in that whole thing. And um, yeah, trying those beers was great. You know, I, I still didn't really have a, a very good palate at all and was just really just learning about it, just sure, trying to figure out sure. what I liked, you know. I was like, oh, Hefeweizens are great. I like that. But, you know, maybe not by the leader um, you know, at Oktoberfest, maybe stick with the fast beer and then drink the half out of the regular glass or whatever. But, um, so after that, you know, we also, we went to Amsterdam and by then I was like, okay, um, West Veterans, the number one rated beer in the world. I got to find it. So I found a place I could get it. So this was all within the first like two or three months of really like being aware of craft beer. I was just like off the deep end trying to figure it all out. Um, and then I had actually homebrewed, um, a little bit before we got one of those Cooper's extract kits. And it was just, you know, really not, we didn't make good beer. But when I came back from Europe, I was thinking, you know, that homebrew thing we tried, I think knowing what I know now about beer, I could probably do that better. You know, now that I understand what good beer tastes like and how it's all supposed to, you know. Um, so I kind of took that experience in Europe and, and came back to the U.S. But, you know, I still hadn't really had many IPAs yet or anything like that. You know, it wasn't, it, so it wasn't so much of an American approach. It was more like grounded European stuff. Um, I also went to Prague and drank a lot of Czech beers at the time. So I was like really into like some of the, you know, the stuff that was coming out of there at the time. Um, so came back, got, you know, a little bit more into home brewing, kind of developed that. And then, um, you know, by the time I finished college in 2009, I think I was like, I, this is what I want to do. You know, I, um, I went to Washington DC and did the UCDC program. I was a poli-sci major and, um, I kind of, I think that was the, that was the the time where I realized that wasn't what I was meant to do. I wasn't going to get in the political world. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I met a brewer while I was over there who was an assistant brewer at one of the brew pubs in the Washington area and, you know, just kind of asked him, Hey, what's it like, like being a brewer, working in a brewery and everything. And he was just like, Oh yeah, I, I love it. You know, blah, blah. And I, you know, I'd been doing some more homebrew batches at the time and thinking to myself, I think I could really do this. So I kind of like, you know, researched what are the best ways to get into this? How would one do it? Um, and thought, well, okay, I'll probably go to brewing school. That seems like the best way to do it. You know, I was still in college at the time thinking, you know, what's another couple months I can do one of these programs like UC Davis or Siebel or American Brewers Guild. So I was trying to figure that out. Um, I had a little internship at a brewery in Santa Barbara back at the time where I was just kind of helping out with packaging and cleaning and whatnot. And, um, it was just enough for me to say, yeah, I think, I think I could do this. I like this, you know? Um, so I ended up going to Siebel 
the year after and just homebrewed a ton. And uh, luckily my dad was game because I was living with my parents after college before I was <laughs> sure, saving sure. up money to go to brewing school. Right. And, and I told my dad, hey, you should homebrew with me. So, you know, he kind of got into it too. And it became a really fun thing for us to do while I was still living with him. Um, and so, yeah, basically, you know, it's funny because like homebrewing, I got really into homebrewing, but it was always with the like goal in mind that like I'm going to be a professional brewer. That's yeah. what I want to do. So... Um, I never had like a tricked out homebrew setup or anything like that. Cause I just thought, you know, I'm not gonna spend a ton of money on this. I'm just going to go work at a brewery. You know, I just need to know, I need to like prove that I can do all the fundamentals, you know? So in retrospect, I kind of like, I wish I would have made better beer if I'd invested in better equipment, but you know, it is what it is. And you know, that was a long time ago. So, um, so yeah, I went you to would have followed the, that same arc that so many have, and you would have spent all this money on homebrew equipment that you then once got into that professional realm, wouldn't touch again. Yeah. And you know, I was... 24 at the time when I was kind of in this phase and didn't have any money and was basically, you know, I went back, I got a full-time job. I actually worked for California state parks for a year, saving up money to go to Siebel, um, waiting until I could get into the class I got accepted sure, to. Sure. And so it was like, you know, I couldn't spend too much money on sure, stuff. Sure. It was like, just, you know, so I was doing like everything I could it short of investing in like a really fancy set. It's so funny. Homebrewing is, is such a, that is such an American pathway into this, you know, that, uh, you know, especially if like, like in a way yours is a more European mode where brewing is a profession in the same way that, you know, and so if you are interested in pursuing it, you can go to university and it's a track that you can pursue, you know, and you will, you can intern and then you can an apprentice and you can also, you know, learn technical kind of university and then come out and work for large scale breweries. And, and so it's not something that's necessarily driven by like, I love to make this in my garage and now I want to make it at this other scale. It's very much driven by that. And, and it was hilarious at our, our very first brewers retreat that we did up in devil's thumb in 2015, you know, Stephen Powell's from Boulevard, Boulevard brewmaster, you know, came and, and he had never brewed on a homebrew system before never just had never ever done that he like came out of the university and studied brewing and went to a 30 hectoliter system and i've just been at that scale ever since and so you know like that's very normal for you know in that kind of world of brewing it's not that normal in in the united states for us in our typical arc to get there yeah i know it does feel a little weird i you know you hear so many stories other brewers how they all do it you know and everyone that i've worked with the firestone over the years um you know, it's all a little bit similar, but everyone has their own kind of unique way. Sure. Um, so yeah. And then after brewing school, um, you know, I mean, going to Chicago at the time was great. It was 2010 and, you know, just kind of seeing some of the Midwest scene, what was going on there, you know, drinking a ton of three Floyds, um, you know, metropolitan. I mean, there, you know, there weren't nearly as many brewers back sure, then though. Sure. So it was really quite a different scene in Chicago. Um, it's, you know, I'd love to go back. I've actually haven't been back since, um, which is really unfortunate, but, um, so yeah, you know, just applied for places. I knew I wanted to stay in California and, um, was, you know, going around looking at a few things and just, um, a few months later, basically got the interview at Firestone and, um, it was, I was kind of like almost just completely overwhelmed by the scale of everything too, you know? Um, and I remember just walking in and thinking like, wow, this is so serious. Like everything, it's like, you know, it's big. And the scale then is not what the scale is now. No, I mean, that's the, that's the funny part of all that is that that to me was just like, I was like, wow, this is the biggest I can imagine a brewery being that's like not Anheuser-Busch, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, I, you know, I landed the job. That was like um, three, three brew houses ago for, yeah. uh, for the Paso brew house. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was, it was our uh, 50 barrel JV Northwest, you know, old four vessel kind of gravity tower system, um, which is a really cool brew house, but, um, really, 
nerve wracking to run because it wasn't very automated and we were running um, like three batches at a time through the brew house. Uh, it was pretty crazy. Trying to learn that in the beginning was very, very overwhelming. So basically your professional career has been brewing for, for Firestone Walker. Yeah. I mean, essentially, like I said that, yeah, no, I had that little internship before, but yeah. Yeah, I didn't, didn't get a real job there. So yeah, basically that was it. So was, they didn't have to retrain the, the, you know, bad habits out of you then they just got to train you from the start. Yeah. I mean, I think that that must've been Matt's plan at the time was saying, okay, I'm just going, you know, if I can find good kids to pull out a Siebel that haven't been uh, corrupted yeah. yet, that's the way to do it. So, <laughs> corrupted. Yeah. <laughs> you can imprint uh, on them, uh, the, the, the Matt Brindleson way to do things. Hey, I mean, it's a, it's smart. <laughs> and so you've, but you've worked on both the hot side and cold side then for Firestone Walker. At what point did you come down here to the propagator brew house? Cause this, uh, here in LA was, is a, a later addition to the overall Firestone family. Yeah. Uh, we opened here in 2016 and at the time I was the seller manager in Paso and, um, well, I, I guess I moved up to that in 2016 as we were opening this. Um, and before that I've been a QC brewer. So I oversaw yeast propagation handling, you know, um, basically, you know, the brewery not too long after I started, I got to the point where it needed one brewer who was like the person in charge of what's going on with the yeast, because, you know, you're handling multiple strains around the brewery. You got to make sure you got good yeast all the time. Um, so, you know, you need somebody to focus on that. And then you know, that's not necessarily a full-time job just doing that. So you would do other stuff. So I was, you know, helping to train the new brewers kind of as like a shift lead and, um, doing some of the barrel stuff. So I, I took over barrel coordination before, before it turned into the program. It is now under Eric. Um, it was a little more basic. So that was just kind of a part-time thing. Um, and, uh, yeah. So then I, I was seller manager for a while, um, and just kind of, you know, got to see a lot of the biggest phases of growth with the new stuff we have now. I mean, obviously we continue to push it, but, um, in 2019 ended up moving down here and uh it, this ended up working out really well for us because my wife really wanted to move to la and this spot opened up and it was just an easy transition uh, to come down and you know and i had been focusing on scale for a while and really just trying to dial that in and we were you know so you know that's such a big part of what we've been doing is you know i've been on a, a big growth trajectory over the years uh, but it was nice to be able to, to change a little bit and come back to the small scale and start focusing on some other aspects that I hadn't had to, you know, think about so much in a while, you know, like just new ingredients, pulling in things that we wouldn't necessarily give a go in the main brew or anything like that. Um, so that was a couple of years ago. And so, yeah, the last couple of years has been, you know, just this continuous uh, development of just new things all the time. And um, it's it's been quite an interesting ride. You know, years ago, I think it was maybe that was 2017. 2017, 2018, um, I had, I'd popped out to the Paso for, and was invited to the anniversary blending that year. T typically every year you invite one media member. And so that was the year. And I, I remember eating dinner that night with David Walker and uh, he made some comment about how, if he could, he would just get Matt together with a, a 10 barrel brew house and have him focus on nothing but R and D like that, that would have, that would be the most, you know, utility for Firestone Walker if he could just do that. And of course, Matt can't give up control of the entire thing. Like, you know, that, that 
that, of course, that innovation piece is super important, but also making sure that that kind of quality, um, you know, reverberates throughout the business is, is just something that, that he won't ever give up. But I think that spoke to an interesting value, you know, that the business places on that idea that innovation was increasingly important in this world of, of craft brewing and that uh, for even a company the, the scale of Firestone Walker being on that edge and being able to actively, you know, focus on innovation and creating new things and, and staying on top of uh, the rapid pace at which things are developing was incredibly important for the business. And so uh, one of the things I want to talk about as we go forward is, is how, you know, you engage in that kind of creative process. Before we do that, a brewery might have 99 problems, but your fruit supplier shouldn't be one. Old Orchard is already known for high quality concentrates, but they also pride themselves on consistent product and reliable supply. When brewers need assistance, Old Orchard is just an email, phone call, or even a text away. Based in Greater Grand Rapids, Michigan, better known as Beer City, USA, Old Orchard is core to the brewing community. To join their fruit family or learn more at www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, are you ready to brew like a pro? Pro Brew has the equipment, systems, and technology to take your brewery production to the next level. Check out www.probrew.com for pro-carb inline carbonation technology, Profill rotary filling and seaming can fillers, the Alchemator inline alcohol separation system, seven to 50 barrel brew houses, and more. ProBrew offers the craft beer industry innovative solutions to help you brew like a pro. Go to www.probrew.com for more info. So let's talk a little bit about what that quote unquote innovate and innovation. We use that word. I mean, it's thrown around as a buzzword and brewing like crazy. And of course that means everything from how do you make uh, synthetically flavored hard seltzer to, um, you know, how can you, you know, focus on hazy IPAs and fruited and sour and everything else. Um, you know, and so putting the, the buzzword aside, there's a creative process, you know, in Firestone Walker, talk to me a little bit about how that creative process works. Well, a big part of it, I think, is just kind of exploring and figuring out what we like and, you know, looking out at the world of craft beer and saying, you know, what, what's inspiring us? What do we think is something worth going after? And then just trying it out and, and going from there. Um, you know, a lot of things obviously are, you know, in your wheelhouse, like, you know, you, you know, you're going to make another IPA, you know? Sure. So that's like, that's something that you're constantly working on is saying, what's the next IPA and, and never giving up on that. Um, and I think, you know, as long as, as long as IPAs are driving a big part of the craft conversation, that's going to be a big part of it. And then also pulling in other elements, um, that, you know, exploring other things like, you know, when we would get into wine hybrid beers for a while, um, you know, quick sour beers, things like that. So you kind of go down these different rabbit holes and some of them lead to full-time brands that end up coming out. Um, some don't, they don't necessarily go anywhere, but you just kind of have to figure that out. So, you know, usually every year we're getting together and this is starting, you know, one, two years out, you know, you're looking ahead and saying, okay, what's going to be coming up and what do we want to start working on? And so, um, you know, um, like I said before, sometimes, you know, maybe for an IPA, it doesn't take as long because you kind of, you have an idea of what you're going to do and you know, you can execute and, um, you just need to find a new, you know, way of playing with some hops that you, you want to get just perfect. Um, but maybe it's a beer like mine is where for us, when we started into that, yes, it's an IPA, but it's a completely different approach, right? So sometimes you just have to to relearn or recombine skills in a way that you haven't before. And you just, you know, I think for us, 
we have a certain like quality standard that's our kind of guiding principle saying, if we're going to do something, this is how we're going to approach it. And we're not going to, um, I guess we're not going to compromise some things just because like, oh, people are like, do that, you know, do it this way, do it this way. And we're trying to think, okay, well, what's the way we want to get in on this and do it in a way that makes the beer we want to make and is like, is how we make beer. Um, and I think everybody has that obviously. Um, but you know, some of the things I'm thinking of here, obviously I could do, but they wouldn't necessarily scale. And that's something you always have to keep in mind in that, you know, we're, if we're going to release a beer out of the, you know, main production brewery, it has to hit certain standards as far as like what kind of beer we can do, you know, um, even though as time goes on, you know, that does evolve, you get more comfortable with things, um, you know, having tools like a flash pasteurizer help, you know, um, things like that, as far as like you need bringing in new ingredients, utilizing ingredients in ways that you may not have before, um, because of shelf stability issues, things like that. Um, but generally, yeah, these conversations are happening, you know, starting a couple of years in advance. And then, you know, and then it's a back and forth with marketing to figure out, you know, what are we comfortable bringing to market? What kinds of new things do we want to do? And then just trying things out. Um, and then on the other side is also just bringing in new ingredients and seeing how they inspire you. And sometimes it's just, um, you know, like the, um, the Hellas that we have on right now, it's just pulling in a new malt and saying, you know, we just want to check that out, see how it goes. And then, you know, you might learn something from that that you, you just didn't think about before and it leads you in a different direction so i think it's just being open to new ideas and open to trying new things and then um constantly learning from it certainly hops as an ingredient are, are a big key inspiration you know piece talk to me a little bit about how you matt other members of the brewing team kind of approach that and find inspiration you know for some of these hoppy beers uh, certainly creating an endless <laughs> new iterations of of hoppy beers is somewhat consumers want but um but making sure that they're interesting, that they're inspired and that, uh, you know, that they are accomplishing something that makes them feel like Firestone Walker is, is the another piece of it. So, you know, w- walk me through like how you all go through that evolutionary process of, of evaluating hops and, uh, you know, developing new hops blends and then finding the right kind of place for those things. Yeah. I think we're in a little bit of a unique position, um, because Matt has so much, time flying around the world, you know, getting into this in ways that few brewers do. Um, you know, we were just talking about, um, the order of the hop honor that he's going to receive next year in Prague. And that's the, um, the beer. In fact, I was just drinking that beer, uh, that you all are canning tomorrow here at the propagator. Yeah. Collaboration with Yakima chief. Um, yeah. One of their, um, employees, uh, Pete that was down here for this brew is also getting that. So, um, we're really excited to get together and brew that, but, um, but yeah, part of that's, you know, he's been working for so many years at that, um, you know, doing educational stuff for Hop Growers of America. And, you know, he's really, that's put him in a unique position, I think. And so, you know, but then we also have a team that goes to Yakima every year. And, um, you know, whether it's for hop selection or our work with the hop quality group has also been um, really important over the last few years. You know, um, Firestone was one of the founding members of the hop quality group. And that's really, you know, just getting together with other brewers regularly, you know, just our, our meetings with them, um, and just kind of, you know, staying up on what's going on in the world of hops and what are we going to do to improve things and how can we keep working with the hop industry to, you know, work on development and work on quality. Um, and so that's just a conversation that's continuously ongoing and has been for years. Um, you know, so I actually for hop quality group, um, this was probably about five or six years ago. I went on my first farm visit, um, up to the Pacific Northwest to Yakima. First time I'd ever been there. 
and just, you know, going up there and meeting the farmers, uh, talking to everybody, you know, and just like, I think that relationship has been great and has benefited everybody so much in the industry. Um, whether it's, you know, the members of hop quality group, craft beer at large, um, you know, the hop growing industry for sure. I think, you know, it's very mutually beneficial to have close relationships. Um, and so, you know, when you're having those conversations and you're, you have those relationships, you're, you're constantly talking about, you know, what's in the pipeline, what's coming next. And, and you see things coming out because, you know, it's uh, developing hops takes a long time. Sure. So, sure. you know, we pretty much everything that's going to be come realistic, you know, we, it's already there right now. We see it and we're just kind of waiting for it, you know? Um, and I imagine if you're someone like Matt or friends of Matt and whatnot, then you're seeing some of the new things when there are a couple of vines out there on the, on the farm before they're, they're even a full row and watching those kinds of things grow and develop as they come. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the stuff going on with the public breeding program right now, um, hop quality groups a little more involved with, um, and, you know, the Brewers Association as well. And, um, you know, I think just kind of getting out there and saying, here's what we want to see out of hops coming forward. Here's the kind of things we want. And then, um, just, you know, working with the, the breeders and the growers to make it happen. Um, you know, we've been really into some of the new stuff that's come out in recent years. Um, you know, I was mentioning Talos before, and Talus is one of those varieties that, um, you know, early on we were really into and sponsored some acreage and started using it a little earlier. Um, you know, so there's definitely, definitely you just have to constantly go up there. You know, every year I go up for hop harvest sure. and I, you know, you're tasting trial beers, um, at the different farms and, and the brokers and, and kind of, you know, they're kind of showing you their latest thing and showing you how, how they're envisioning it. But, you know, you've got to take it back to the brewery and use it yourself and really see how it works for you because you know depending on how you approach ipa brewing you know you're going to get different things out of the hops you know whether it's how you dry hop the yeast strains you're using you know your approach to malt builds things like that um so you never really know um you can taste something that you think is like oh, i don't know about that you know I, I think there's a some hops came across you know um i think i just think back to the first time i saw cashmere and i was like oh okay you know i think i remember rubbing it um we got a sample in the brewery and um, we were all like, oh, that's, that could be nice. I don't know. You know, and then we kind of forgot about it for a year or two kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, you get kind of a second look at it. And I think, you know, this is about when we were starting to get into, um, to hazy stuff and we were looking for some new hops and we saw cashmere again. And, you know, and I don't know, you know, I think the hop had changed number one, um, you know, as hops scale and, um, growers fig or figure out picking windows, um, they're going to, um, they're going to dial in a profile the way you know, that, and the brewers have to give them feedback to you and say, Hey, maybe this was a little earlier, this was a little late, or maybe your approach to drying could change. And so you start having that conversation as you have that conversation, you kind of, you figure it out over time. Um, so it takes both sides. Um, we absolutely love cashmere now, you know, and it's, it's something that we're putting in uh, multiple beers at this point. So, um, I didn't even really thought about that, that, uh, you know, for a hop grower, determining what is the ideal picking window for these hops, given what these you know conditions are, you know, they are constantly with more developed crops measuring, you know, um, the development of, of oils and various components of those hops against what their expected standard is so that they know, but, um, and then they can harvest them when they, they hit that kind of ideal window. But of course, when you're talking about something new, um, you know, it, figure, figure out where that, what that is, you know, when the certain flavor components are hitting that point. I mean, there's a, there's a kind of 
hedonic, you know, sensory kind of component to that. Well, like, where do I like this the most? But then it starts developing, you know, some of these other later harvest characters that are a little more overwhelming and starts becoming oniony, grassy, you know, uh, those, those pieces that I, I may not want as much out of. I mean that, yeah, that's an interesting kind of piece of that whole hop development process to figure out when, when you take it off the vine. Yeah. And, and brewers aren't going to agree on that either. You know, everyone has their own approach. And, um, I think, you know, some brewers just like, you know, more late character, some like more early character, you know, a variety like Simcoe. I know people love to talk about, um, just like, when's the perfect day, you know, like, right, did they right. like their Simcoe pick this day, this day, this day? Um, because you know, it'll continue to change. And I think, you know, we have a just pro- like why no one else is ever going to make Pliny the Elder because no one else has early harvest CTZ, like good luck, you know, exactly. um, no one else is going to have a farm picket in that window. And so it is what it is. Um, you know, but right. Evaluating what, what those are going to do in the brew house for you, um, is something, you know, is where that kind of process comes back and, uh, you know, has to hit a more kind of methodical approach. Talk to me about as you, you know, how you all take some of these varieties as they're developing, um, you know, and put them to work to understand how in your context that, uh, they may work for you all. We have a couple layers of, uh, how we try out new hops and, you know, obviously the first is it, well, even before that is just, you know, assessment in the field, um, assessment on the table during selection, you know, new, Hey, check this out, you know, okay, maybe we'll do that next year. Then getting samples sent to the brewery and, um, we have some one barrel fermenters that we use up in Paso where we'll just divert off, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, some of our main beers like Minehaze or, you know, Union Jack or Luponic usually. Um, and then you can dry hop those with single varieties. And so we have a pretty robust program doing that where we're just getting really quick looks at, Hey, what are we getting out of this hop just from aromatic impact? Um, and so that's useful because we can get a lot of work done pretty fast. And, you know, here, yeah, this is the pilot brewery, but, um, but, you know, we're still making 20 barrels of beer at a time. Usually, sure. uh, I, you know, we can't make 10, we can do half batches, but, um, you know, it's, so here's really a variety that we know we like already, you know, that we know is like, here's something we want to explore. Then let's figure out, you know, um, we kind of had like two different streams. Do we want to do more of a hazy style beer or do we want to do West coast style beer? And then, um, you know, try the hop out in that. So then that's kind of the next step up. And then you get to put it in front of people too. So those beers we make for R and D up there, it's, you know, they're not sold. It's all just internal. Sure. Um, but here we're making beer that we're actually putting well, one, in front one of barrel is too small for anyone yeah. to bother trying to sell it at Firestone Walker. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. It's, it, uh, it gets tapped in the lab, tasted and then, right. you know, right. probably sent down the drain, uh, at that point, unless it's a really good one. Um, but, um, yeah, so here we're putting the beer in front of people and we're kind of getting, you know, it's more, it's also valuable too, because you're getting more impressions of it, even from the brewing side. So, you know, we can tap a beer here, um, have it on tap for, you know, a month. And then we also, the beer that we brew here also gets served at our pubs, um, at the main brewery in Paso, and then also at the, the Bear Works pub in Buellton. So we've got three different locations. We're getting a lot of people drinking these beers. Um, and then also all the brewers are going in and drinking them too. So if you're having a shift pint of a beer, it may take a few pints and then you're like, you know, that hop is it's kind of growing on me or it's doing something it wasn't doing maybe in a lab setting where I had a two ounce sample, you know, in, um, in the sensory lab. And, you know, that's really good for weeding out things that are really weird, but for really finding something that you're going to fall in love with, sometimes it takes a little more time. You need to really get to know it. Um, so there's also that layer to it. And, um, and then the stuff that we really like out of that program, uh, we ramp up for seasonal release in our, um, our two mix packs. So, you know, we'll do one canned beer and one bottled beer, 
every time we rotate through the different mix pack. And so we're just, you're getting a different one. And that's a good chance to get in front of people and say, Hey, how does like, how does the market at large think about this? And it's a lot of fun to kind of see the reactions there. Um, so kind of all the way through the scale, you know, and those beers, um, those are our propagator series beers in the mix packs, but they're actually brewed at the main brewery, but it's just a continuation of the single hop series we're doing here. That's really interesting. I think it's time is the other thing that you get to evaluate when you start brewing it on a 20 barrel system and those kinds of things, because, you know, the way that hops continue to express themselves in beer does change get over time. And that's a a, a, component to this that you may not get out of a small one barrel sample that uh, gets tasted and evaluated quickly in a lab. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, some hops age better than others or just uh, change in interesting ways. And uh, you never really know what you're going to get. Yeah. How do you, um, you know, then start building the blend ideas? You know, you've you've now tested out some stuff here, and and you have some constants that you you know you hold consistent so that uh, you know you can understand the effects that these things kind of have. But uh, you know, that's always been a fascinating thing. And blending is blending hops has become such a big piece of the Firestone Walker kind of strategy. Obviously, the Luponic Distortion series is is known for that. And even in the world of Mind Haze, you all are starting to play in that with different hops blends and different kinds of approaches to, you know, to Mind Haze, taking that kind of base brand and extending it in varying directions. Um, you know, talk to me about that, you know, how, how you all go about building blends. Well, Mind Haze has definitely given us a lot of data to look at, you know. So I look back on the, the Mind Haze um, page in our, our dry hop file now. And it's amazing how many different hop combinations that we've been able to try with that. And each time, you know, we develop that, um, it takes a couple of test batches to kind of work out. Um, but usually we're working with hops, you know, we're rubbing the hops we're, we know what we're getting into, and then we're making up the blends and then, um, and then developing that. And so we've seen what a lot of different hops do together over time, over the years we've been making that beer. And pretty much, I mean, at this point, I don't know what we haven't put in, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, we've, you know, other than like hops that just aren't really IPA hops at all, you yeah. know, like traditional noble or, you know, English varieties that just don't work well in IPAs. Um, but pretty much every, every new American thing that's come along or Southern hemisphere, whether it's, you know, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, they've all gone into mine haze at some point and we, and we found a way to, to make them all work. Um, so yeah, you learn a lot from doing that over time. And this isn't like, you know, galaxy dry hopped mind haze. This is, you have you know, um, within the context of what people expect mine haze to be tried different hop variations within that. Oh, sorry. I meant Lupon distortion for those. Oh, Lupon distortion. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. sorry I misspoke that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the Lupon distortion series. Yeah. That, that's what we're going okay. to work. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> my, no, mine haze, um, you know, there've been a couple tweaks along the way of mine haze is, uh, you know, over the different harvests, um, and, you know, and so even with, yeah, within brands that we try to keep a consistent flavor profile for, obviously that recipe does change over time as sure. the ingredients change, um, everything, you know, from Union Jack, uh, through to Mine Haze now, um, you know, it's a subtle process of continuous evolution, um, as the hops change as, um, yeah, even as malt quality changes throughout the years, you know, or as, um, tastes subtly change over the years, you know, um, there'll be very small tweaks in that direction, but, um. Yes. I love that. You know, I mean, it's something I've been talking about for, for years and years and years here on the podcast that, uh, sometimes you have to change to stay the same. Yeah. And then that's absolutely the case in beer that, uh, most of those recipes 
you know, classic recipes and classic brands that we know. Uh, I mean, even Budweiser, my goodness, the Anheuser-Busch, you know, folks change that beer all the time because, you know, all that matters, doesn't matter what the recipe is. All that matters is that the focus groups perceive something now based on how that they're tasting these things as, as the way that that beer is. And so, um, you know, all of our sensory inputs are being constantly, uh, you know, bombarded by different things, whether it's the latest drink at Starbucks or just how sweet Starbucks makes their lattes. Who knows what it could be, you know, um, you know, what, what fast food, you know, trends start to kind of feed into that. But all of these pieces impact our palates and in varying kinds of ways. And so, um, you know, you're right for something to be perceived in the same kind of way. It can't necessarily just be static. I mean, actually has to be dynamic in order to to kind of maintain that consistency. Yeah, absolutely. And just as consumer expectations evolve, you're just trying to keep up. I think, you know, if, if you try to keep a recipe the same over a 10-year period, um, barring some more traditional beers, perhaps, I think you would end up realizing that, wow, this is not what I'm expecting at this point, you know, because everyone else has changed so much. And I think especially the IPA game has changed so much in the last 10 years. You know, I, I look back at, you know, when we did put out Lupin Distortion for the first time, that was actually after we had already become aware of uh, New England trends and what was kind of happening there. And we were kind of like taking some steps in that direction, you know, where we were like, okay, we're going to make a filtered West Coast IPA but we're going to get close to that flavor profile because, you know, we have Union Jack. That's our classic West Coast IPA that we've been making for a few years now. So let's try something a little different. Let's lower the bitterness. Let's pull out the crystal. Um, you know, so we got a lighter color, a little bit lower ABV, dry it out a little bit, and then just go for this bigger, you know, juicier hop profile. And, um, but, you know, but it was clear. Um, and then it's funny, you know, I, I remember um, sending somebody a picture of uh, like a post dry hop sample before we were filtering it. And I said, you know, here's our new IPA. Uh, that's, you know, back when everybody was joking about hazy beer. Sure, sure. Um, it's so lazy. It's and so lazy. yeah, what are we doing? You know, but, um, and it's fine. And then, you know, people like freaking out about it, but, um, but no, you know, and then eventually, you know, a couple years later, um, you know, you kind of find out that, well, no, there is something to the haze and the approach that's fundamentally different. And then kind of going down that rabbit hole and figuring that out. And that took us a long time here and a lot of test batches to do, um, but that, that's kind of another road, I guess. Boy, that sounds like something we should talk about. But before we do that, your your beer deserves all your attention. Clarion makes that a little easier. Their food-grade lubricants will help keep your system running smooth while also safeguarding your product from costly contamination and recall. Because then you'll be in full compliance with food safety standards. And it's all thanks to a simple switch to Clarion. A food-safe system that lets you focus on your craft We'll drink to that. Go to clarionlubricants.com to learn more. So yeah, talk to me about this. So when we started down that road, um, I think the first thing we needed to figure out was, do we need- Because I love the idea that the format and malt and general mouthfeel and residual sweetness and all of these other pieces could actually change the way- that you approach, you know, um, and you know, the kind of fundamentals and the, and the way that you even think about some of these other ingredients. Yeah. I mean, it's, it was kind of relearning everything and recombining everything that we kind of knew about beer in, in a new way. And I think the fundamental breakthrough, um, at least that, that Matt kind of communicated to the team at the time was, you know, um, we brew a great Bavarian style Hefeweizen. And so, you know, what if we can take everything we know about that and make an IPA learning some of those lessons about how that beer 
how the appearance of that beer is key to the flavor of that beer. If you drink in a Crystal Weizen, you know that like it's not the same beer. And so um, I think we had to accept that because, you know, at the time I remember there was a lot of back and forth between, oh, you know, you can make a clear beer that tastes like a hazy beer or whatever. And, um, and I think we came to the conclusion that like you really can't. Um, there's a fundamental difference there. And part of it is the appearance, the body, and, um, and a fundamentally different way in which haze carries um, hop components that a clear beer can't. Um, so with that in mind, you kind of set out and say, okay, so how are you going to build it? Um, and just pull together the different ingredients you're going to use. We tried out different yeast strains, um, you know, different combinations of wheat and oats, pretty much everything you could think of before we kind of settled on um, the approach that we use now. And, um, and that did involve bringing in a new yeast strain and, you know, for a while. So the Firestone house yeast is, um, a relatively estuary English yeast strain. And, you know, and so at the time I was thinking, actually, everyone's trying to figure out a way to make this work so you can use the same yeast, right? I was like, I was like, we're going to use the same yeast. We're going to use it. It's like, why not? I was like looking at the, you know, people that were using London three or Conan or, um, you know, some of the other stuff, like even Sactois where they're like, oh, it's more ester forward. And, you know, for uh, most of the brewers in California are using something like cow ale. Generally, not everyone. Actually, there's a lot more that don't than you might think, but, um, I felt like we were already there yeast wise, you know, we're, we already have a big ester yeast. Um, but it turns out that a shelf stable haze and a more stable profile was difficult specifically with our house yeast. Uh, it flocculates really hard and, um, and yeah, beers would clear up a little bit more. You just wouldn't quite get And the ester profile was maybe not exactly what we were envisioning. So we pulled in some other yeast and we ended up settling on a different strain, um, which kind of gave us everything we wanted, um, out of that new flavor profile. Um, is and it London Ale 3? It's related. <laughs> okay. Yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and it's just, you know. It's not, to- we're not ground, breaking new ground there. We're not. Uh, <laughs> no, I know. But um, lighting the world on fire. Yeah, and I think it's, so learning to use that was yeah, um, yeah. was something that I think was like, you know, uh, pulling another yeast strain in is a little bit just different enough that you're, you're relearning it, but it's also very similar to our house yeast. So, uh, it was, it was familiar enough that I think we were sure. very comfortable with it right off the bat, but we did have to kind of adjust some of the way in which we dry hopped because of flocculation characteristics and things like that. Um, and then, you know, really reapproaching hops and saying, okay, we want to develop a completely different hop profile and then coming up with a blend to do that. And so we ended up with a pretty big blend of hops of, of mostly, the newest varieties that were on the table, to be honest, um, you know, with bringing in a couple ones from a little bit further in the past to kind of round it out. But, um, and you know, like I said, that's changed a little bit over the years. Um, we've actually ended up adding in one or two more over time, um, to keep consistency up, um, as things have changed. Um, but, um, but yeah, we, we just kind of ended up getting to the finish line there after, you know, just banging out batch after batch after batch. And, you know, starting with the same base recipe, trying different yeasts, things like that. And then serving those, you know, I think the first time we did three different yeasts, put all those beers on the tap at the same time. And, and just like, we actually did a whole like customer survey where we were like, Hey, everybody tell us what you think of these, fill out the sheet. And we we're kind of having fun with it yeah. that way. And then once we kind of, then we're like, okay, then we kind of found the yeast we were most comfortable with there. And then, you know, we kind of went from there and continued to tweak it. Um, but, um, and, and we still continue to as well. You know, I think, um, I still brew a lot of different hazy IPAs down here. And part of that is just to try out, yeah, like new hops, um, how they work within a bigger base beer, um, how different, you know, different alcohol strengths work with the yeast and how that brings out ester profiles, 
um, you know, using different things like malted oats was a big one um, that we had played around with a little bit back in the earlier kind of mine haze phase. Um, but I, I was approached by um, another supplier more recently that was doing some malted oats now. And I was like, okay, let's give them a try again. And um, we made some really interesting beers this year with them. And it's something, an ingredient that I really fell in love with. So there's always something new. Malted oats. Why malted oats? Well, the thing we found out about malted oats um, is that you get a lot of the quality of flaked oat, but it louders a lot better. Uh, I was actually uh, loudering these big hazy IPAs in about the same time as a Pilsner, which we never used to be able to do. Um, and you, so, and so you're able to use more, so you don't kind of limit yourself to right. this, okay, here's my maximum oat I can add, and then everything's going to get stuck on me. Um, so, you know, we were tripling, quadrupling that amount and getting this really saturated oat flavor in a way that you, you wouldn't otherwise get, um, you know, really great haze stability and just like this really luscious mouthfeel. Um, so that was a lot of fun. When I was talking to Steve Luke at Cloudburst uh, a few months ago, he, he's, moved to malted uh, wheat and oats, but it was for stability for, you know, reasons. So it's kind of interesting getting to the same place, but for, uh, for another reason, talk to me a little bit about, um, impact of ABV on hops expression. You know, that, that seems like a interesting thing that you've played around with here. Yeah. And, you know, I think that kind of goes back to our house yeast and how, um, being a more ester forward yeast, how that expression changes over different gravity ranges. So if you'll take, uh, you know, our West coast range going from easy Jack session, IPA, um, kind of stopping at Luponic, which is about 6% alcohol up to union Jack at seven and then double Jack, uh, which we brought back as a, a seasonal or our big double IPA last year. Um, but it's, we don't have it all the time anymore. Um, that's nine and a half percent. So you see how that affects the flavor of the hops over time. And you kind of find that, uh, that kind of like breaking point where the ester really starts to make itself known. Um, and, you know, and that's a big part of hazy IPAs, right? Ester breaking point, huh? Yeah. It's like, you know, the, with the lower beers, it's just, you know, it's, uh, ester content scales pretty closely with, uh, with original gravity. So, you know, if you want to increase the ester content of the beer, you know, raise the gravity. Um, so, you know, in a beer like double Jack, you're getting a ton of that profile, um, and that's why I think, you know, beer like that's like very quintessentially firesome because it really displays our ester profile. Um, you know, but even, even beers, um, depending on the beer, like a beer like 805, um, displays a lot of our house, uh, ale character. Um, but people don't think about it as much because it's a lighter beer and it doesn't, but it's not fighting with the hops. Um, so for hoppy beers, yeah, something like Luponic, you know, that's in that sweet spot where, um, we're getting just enough ester that it rounds things out, you know, and we tend, you know, our, our yeast is a little more banana forward, um, a little bit of like ethyl butyrate, some kind of like, you know, pineapple mango thing, but, um, but not a ton, not, not as much as like one in three. Um, and so, you know, that's why Luponic, that gravity, we kind of chose, uh, I mean, for various reasons, but that kind of middle sweet spot of like, it's an IPA, but it's a, it's a little bit on the small side for an IPA, especially West coast IPA. Um, and that, that allowed us to let the hops kind of take center stage there. And then union Jack is like this ultimate combo of like, that's just to the point where our yeast is really saying, Hey, like this is a Firestone beer. Um, this is our yeast character. And, but, and then here's this classic West coast hop profile, you know, featuring a ton of Simcoe and, you know, Chinook, Centennial, Cascade, um, Amarillo, and really like, you know, getting those classic varieties in there and then letting them kind of have a, a dialogue with the yeast and making it a unique beer. And I always thought that that's what, you know, we've used some cow ale over the years, um, for some contract brewing, not necessarily for Firestone beers, even though we did a tiny bit. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, the beers are very different, you know, I think. So that's always set us apart a little bit. 
talk to me a little bit, uh, you know, uh, as we were discussing before we started the podcast, um, you've got a whole new line extensions around mind haze coming out, some that involve fruit and, and other types of variations on, you know, using this kind of mind haze idea to extend it into to other directions. Um, but one of the fascinating things you mentioned to me was that it's not the same base beer for each of these that, uh, in, in a lot of ways you are now tailoring you know, even the, the base recipe around what additional, the contributions of, of various other ingredients on what those might provide, you know, to, to these beers. Talk to me a little bit about that process. Um, you know, because that seems like, uh, something that's rife for a whole series of other challenges that cascade out from it as you start changing those pieces. Yeah, definitely. It certainly makes it much more complex than just, hey, we're going to you know take this tank of mind haze and add such and such to it. Yeah, yeah. We didn't just start on the road of, okay, we're just going to take the same recipe and then we're going to keep, um, you know, adding new things to it and making new beers. So it, they're all a slightly different approach. And that kind of started um, a while back here down at the Propagator when we were thinking about making a wit beer. And we were kind of inspired by Blue Moon, which, um, you know, it's funny, you probably don't hear a ton of craft brewers admitting that, but uh, inspired by this idea that, well, you know, okay, so, you know, they I kind mean, of famously- Blue Moon sells a heck of a lot of beer. Yeah. It's, not a, it's not a bad thing to well, be- uh, And they famously don't use a Belgian yeast strain for it. You know, they use an English strain for it. So we were thinking, well, okay, what is a, a hazy IPA and the approach to hazy IPA that we take with mine haze using oats, using unmalted wheat, using malted wheat- um, you know, when you look at it on paper, you say, well, what's the difference between this and a wit beer? They're almost the exact same, uh, malt recipe when it comes down to it. So we thought, well, we can kind of go down that road. So we started adding, you know, spices and orange peels. And then, you know, that turned into using fruit purees and kind of like seeing where that would take us. And so through that, we kind of found our way back into mind haze by adding hops back to it and saying, okay, so now we're kind of making this weird hybrid English, Belgian, American kind of approach to how this beer could be constructed. Um, and so now, yeah. And then, you know, so it turned into these different flavor profiles. Um, so the two that we were doing right now is, um, one of them is coconut and that was just, um, we just love coconut. I don't know. So many people love coconut. We you didn't love just coconut. use Sabro. I mean, you might have, when did you just use Sabro? Well, and then we add a little Sabro to oh, it too. Okay. You know, you gotta, you you've got to play the Sabro off sure, the coconut, sure. you know? Okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, even though, you know, Sabro is just too polarizing on its own, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I remember the first time we did a single hop Sabro beer, I fell in love with it actually. And then we added it to other beers and it's funny. It's almost like it's one of those hops where it's almost all or nothing. It can be great just dominating a recipe, but a lot of people, if you have it in this like weird kind of in-between zone, a lot of people don't like it. Um, but, uh, but if you use it to, um, kind of amplify coconut flavor, then it's a very useful hop. Um, what's your amplify percentage? You know, we use like five or 10% of, of Sabro, but then, uh, at 25 to 50, it's terrible. And then at hundred, it's great again. Uh, I mean, that's pretty, pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. About 10, maybe 10, 15. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, and we were actually making one and this is one before I moved down here. Um, the, the last head brew here, Evan, um, before he moved on, uh, he made this little beer called a uh, Hugasito. And, um, it was just this hazy pale ale with coconut and, uh, and just people loved it. And, um, and so I brewed, actually, it was one of the first beers he brewed the last one. When I moved down here, it was sitting in tank and I was like, I remember coming in and I go and going, Hey, where, uh, where'd you get the coconut? You know, I'd never, 
got, we never used coconut before. And I think he had ordered it through the company that they order for the kitchen. And he just got flaked coconut from the, um, from the food supplier. And so we actually went out, this is a good opportunity. Um, we had just done a collaboration with another brewery down here that, uh, uses some coconut and, and we were like, Hey, where do you get your coconut from? So we found another coconut supplier. Um, and you know, and we had done some different stuff and actually, you know, I should say, uh, Eric did uh, one coconut in barrels before, but the thing he did, he toasted it over, uh, one of those like Santa Maria charcoal or, you know, uh, wood grills, um, you know, which Central Coast is famous for making tri-tip sure. with. Um, and he was toasting the coconut with that. And I was like, I don't think this is really a viable method to process coconut <laughs> for us, especially on a larger scale. So right. we kind of like, you know, so then we tried it, um, in the kitchen, um, you know, toasting it there. And then luckily we were able to move on. So we found a supplier that we could get pre-toasted from because we really liked the toasted character. Yeah. Um, so we found a great supplier on the central coast, actually a local company that did that for us. Um, so, you know, we started, we did coconut double mine haze last year and really liked that. So, um, so we kind of developed that. So a little bit of a spin on that, um, but more in the mine haze range and just tailoring the dry hop to really work really well with that. Um, with a coconut character. And I think it just makes a really cool beer. Now extraction with coconuts, it's, it's an interesting challenge. And I, I would imagine that on something like a double mined haze that with that little bit of extra alcohol that might be in there, um, might actually aid extraction a little bit more than on a, a smaller beer. Um, you know, how does, I mean, brewing with coconut on that kind of scale has to be kind of a pain in the butt for a brewery like Firestone Walker. It definitely is. It's a ton of work. Um, basically it's, there's, you know, it takes basically one brewer full time almost to do it. And, you know, we have an extraction tank that we got a few years ago. That's really helped us, um, kind of move on with some of these new ingredients. And a lot of it was our seasonal stout. Um, we were doing uh, coffee and chocolate version of it. And then we did a coconut version of that. Um, and before we, you know, started doing coconut IPA on a larger scale, and so, yeah, you, you load up the tank, you know, you sandy the whole system, purge it out and then just pump it in a loop with the tank. And, um, and before that, you know, that really helped us because before we were dumping coffee, we were going for the top of 200 barrel tanks with just bags and bags of coffee from a local roaster and dumping them in the top of the tank. Um, so it was nice to be able to not have to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, and then the cocoa, we were hanging in a, another tank. It was pretty crazy. We would be hanging like hundreds of pounds off of like a chain off the man. We had this one tank and we had our different methods of doing it. But, um, but having an extractor tank has been really nice because it's just, you know, one closed loop setup. You know, you just have to be really meticulous about purging it and making sure you're not introducing any oxygen in the process. Um, but, uh, but yeah, coconut, it just takes so much coconut, you know, pounds and pounds per barrel. So, um, so it, it's quite an involved process, but it's just, um, for people like coconut, it's just such a delicious flavor. You know, and you it's all still it. real coconut, real shit. Yeah, like this is all just toasted, shredded toasted. coconut. Yeah. So and yeah, it's we, not extracted coconut extract or coconut flavoring. No, you know, coconut, I, it just, yeah, it's something we, we tried to see what it was sure. like and we yeah. just can't. Yeah. It's just, you need the real coconut. Yeah. Um, you've got fruit flavors on, on the horizon also coming out in the, on the mind haze side. Talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, again, building a recipe that supports that kind of, of piece, both on the hop side and, uh, you know, if there are any malt considerations. Yeah. I think one of the things, you know, like I said, the kind of, um, that, uh, that road we started going down, trying to kind of fuse wit beer and seeing where that would take us, um, with fruit. Yeah. You know, especially because it's a low bitterness beer, you know, so you can add fruits with some acidity and it's not going to get in the way. And I think that the problem we always had with um, trying to do fruit IPAs in the past and whenever we trialed them was um, most people don't like acidity and bitterness in combination. So you have to be really careful about that. And, you know, if you take a base IPA recipe and then you add fruit in a way that that lowers the pH significantly, uh, it, it tends to turn a lot of people off. 
and just it's not a smooth flavor profile. The bitterness becomes harsh. Um, so by then, you know. Oh, I mean, just just the perception of hops bitterness. It's amazing. You can try it at different kinds of pH levels. Like people perceive the quality of that bitterness and, you know, dra- and flavor in drastically different ways. And it's such a, yeah, right. It's so impacted, you know, by that experience of pH. Yeah. So being really mindful of that effect um, and then coming back, you know, after having Mine Haze become, you know, a beer that we are very comfortable with, uh, we could come back and add uh, fruit to different, you know, base, basically a base beer, Mine Haze and say, okay, what's this doing to it? Um, so we really, uh, we found a tangerine supply that's uh, grown in central California um, where we can get, you know, it's picked and then um, pureed and frozen. So we can use it all year round, but you're getting this really great, you know, kind of fresh tangerine flavor that's, you know, I mean, we're so lucky in Central California because we have so much great fruit grown really close to us. You know, I mean, if you drive out into the Central Valley, uh, east of Paso, you know, you get to basically like Citrus Central. I mean, the, the kind of eastern side of the valley there is just, you know, every like, you know, all the cuties and the halos and all, all right. those little fruits, you know, it's, it's all grown in that area. Um, so, you know, being able to find a local supply, that was really key. Um, you know, same thing um, when we developed, uh, you know, lime uh, for cerveza, um, you know, working with these local companies to get the fruit. Um, so tangerine worked really well for us. Uh, we also tried mango. That was one that, um, you know, kind of led us in a slightly different direction because it does work. The rum works really well for hops, but, you know, mango is a very different kind of fruit. Obviously, a tangerine is much more acidic. Um, so, you know, so that's what we're, we're going with right mango now. Mango is much more go. phenolic and, uh, you know, has a potential, like plasticky kind of uh you know flavors that most people don't find as pleasant takes a lot of mango to punch through too yeah um yeah it's it's very difficult i think to get to like that really pungent aroma out of just mango um and so yeah but But there's also fermentables that come with uh you know a fruit like you know tangerine right the juice is gonna add some some sugar which you know is gonna get fermented out how do you do you how do you adjust that because you're certainly trying to keep things in a in a certain abv range then yeah. And so initially, you know, we were adding this all as kind of like a secondary fermentation. Um, and you know, that's can work depending on the fruit. Um, it doesn't work for every fruit, um, especially depending on the base beer. Um, but with tangerine, it works pretty well. So we had a lot of success, um, actually fermenting the tangerine through, um, but, um, but also not fermenting it and just depending on the amount you add, you know, and like I said, that's where, um, you know, we're able to be comfortable with some fruit additions like that at a certain scale because of the, you know, the QC and uh, having a flash pasteurizer and stuff like that. You know, it's something that I think we, you know, so adding, you can, you can use some un- unrefermented yeah. fruit just because you know that there's no viable yeast left. Yeah. At a certain beer. scale. Yeah. 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 It's, um, but, um, but yeah, always being kind of mindful of like, you know, if something does go wrong, what are your limits? Um, you know, and because having exploding, um, packages is just something that, uh, you know, we don't ever want to risk. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, but then, you know, and then recombining that, you know, and at bringing the hop element back too is something that, you know, then you have to find a way to make that play. Um, so it's been a fun process. Yeah. How do you make that hop element play in that kind of citrus realm? Well, yeah, like I said, it's, you know, it's, it's really about like having a really smooth bitterness and, you know, so how are you bringing the aroma? And then, you know, luckily, um, mine haze, that's something we've been developing for a while is, is it's very much as a hazy IPA, it's that style where it's very low bitterness, very rounded mouthfeel. Uh, it doesn't really have the bite. It's not, you know, some of the stuff I brewed down here now is we're trying to push a little bit more in the other direction where it's almost like kind of West coast haze style where we're bringing in more bitterness. We're trying to make it a little cleaner, um, maybe a little less estuary, but, um, but with mine haze, yeah, that's, you know, that was our first shot of like saying, you know, this is our, we're going with this, like, 
this style where we want it to be a super juicy beer and that's what it's all about. And so it, it turns out that it works really well. Um, and that all it, all it takes is basically just maybe a little massaging of the hops one way or another, depending on how you think the aroma works off of it. Um, and luckily citrus, you know, naturally plays well, you know, sure, so sure. It's, it's not too difficult to, to find one that works. Talk to me about some of your, the fun experimental IPAs that are just propagator products right now, you know, and obviously I've had stuff like gen one and we were drinking the the uh, hazy order of the hop, uh, you know, special commemorative beer that you just produced. But you mentioned being able to, in this kind of context, push, you know, say uh, ideas like aggressive, more aggressive bitterness that may not make it out into a you know a broader commercial release. Uh, you know, what are talk to me about some of the more interesting um, things that you've learned through pushing some of these other elements in that kind of hazy IPA uh, sphere here at the Propagator. Yeah, I mean, it's there's just so much room to explore. And I think, you know, I, I've been more interested in, um, you know, what I guess with every new hot variety that comes around, you kind of think, OK, how am I going to combine this with something I already like and what's it going to do for me? Um, and so I think a lot of it is just it's just kind of like trying to take everything that we can get and just and just making it work. You know, and we've been doing that for such a long time, too. Um, and then part of it's, yeah, just like, you know, the subtle tweaking of the base beers and saying, okay, you know, am I going to drive a little higher finishing gravity or lower finishing gravity? Um, you know, how are we going to do the dry hopping, um, you know, multiple additions versus single additions and just trying everything we can really think of, um, for the most part, um, you know, even bringing in different yeasts, I think, you know, a, a kind of different approach we developed, um, not too long after I came down here was this beer welcomed LA and, it's a lager, but we, you know, it's been this kind of uh, evolution of making a lager that's like an IPA. Uh, never, you know, we kind of, maybe a couple times we call it an IPL, but, you know, we kind of came back to just calling it a hoppy lager. Um, but, you know, I think that the that's same, right, cause this, this area, you know, is, is known for these, you know, heavily hopped pilsners and, uh, oh, yeah. uh, you know, and of course, uh, you know, you've got Firestone alums like Kevin Davy, a Wayfinder, making things like cold IPA. I mean, you know, this this broader family, whether it's your your local friends here or whether it's this you know extended alumni network, um, you know, they've got their hands all over this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I got to shout out to uh, Highland Park because Timbo Pills was kind of a revelation when we first had it because we had we've been brewing Welcome to LA for a little bit here, and then um, you know they wanted GABF with that. And I had also entered, um, uh, I think it was the second or third batch of Welcome to LA. We entered into GBF too, and I hadn't had Timbo yet. And then they got that. And then I was like, okay, what are they doing here? And I think, you know, cause lager is kind of a state of mind, you know, in, in some ways where it's like, well, what is a lager? And if I'm going to make, you know, so my first conception of it was like, okay, um, make it like a German kind of style, use all new German hops and then see how that plays. And then, you know, then turn to, then I looked at what they were doing. It's like, Oh, well they're, they're going like very classic West coast approach, you know, with like mosaic, et cetera. And, um, and we'd actually done that on the first batch, but then thought we, we did like the Holy Trinity, you know, Simcoe, Citra, Mosaic. Um, and then it just kind of evolved from there. We tried it with Australian hops, you know, we went really galaxy heavy and everything. So we're just kind of finding our way and yeah, being inspired by everybody around us that was doing this interesting stuff. Um, and I really think there's an interesting. I remember having happening. that Highland Park one of their one of their pilsners, which was a Nelson Sauvin hopped pilsner, and I remember having it at the Firestone Walker Invitational uh, a couple of years ago, 
and going back for another pour of it and thinking, where, wait, wait, where did this come from? And how does this beer exist? And, uh, you know, it, yeah, it was one of those things that, uh, that was kind of eye opening to see that this could even be a thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, once, um, and there's something that I learned from Kevin, um, it was that, you know, uh, sulfur. And I think his whole thing with cold IPA, the thing he was trying to get across to everybody was that, you know, sulfur doesn't play well with American hops. Um, there's, there's a limit there. There's something going on and you have to get that under control. And that the big hang up with a lot of, uh, India pale lager was, was too much sulfur and how that didn't work. So, um, so basically dialing things in to kind of control that I think was really useful. Um, how do you control sulfur? Well, mostly, I mean, yeast strain, but if you're going to use the same, you know, different lager yeast produce different sulfur. Um, and then, you know, speed of fermentation too, you know, depending on how much you pitch or oxygenation, but, um, you know, a big one is just temperature is just getting the end warm. Um, you know, you get rid of a lot of sulfur if you let it warm up at the end more aggressively than we would in the past. Whereas with a traditional lager profile, you know, we want to keep more sulfur in, um, sure, so for something like Chivo, sure. that's, you know, we're going for that kind of classic German profile, um, or I guess classic Italian profile, you might say, um, your, is there such thing as a classic Italian lager profile? I mean, you know, anyway, that's a whole nother rabbit hole of an argument. <laughs> oh yeah. But, um, but you know, we have this, you know, kind of like more sure, sure. traditional lager kind of approach to it. Um, but then, you know, and that works really well because, um, because with the German hops we're using there, they play really well together and that's just a classic flavor profile. Um, but then you start adding in some more dank American hops. And this is something that we keep coming back to is that dankness and sulfur have this kind of amplifying effect that becomes uncomfortable. And, um, so we're always saying, ah, you know, they're a little too dank or, you know, maybe so, you know, so the first approach was keep the lager fermentation profile, work on massaging the hop blend in a way to control the sulfur and really kind of picking out, you know, so like we would make a mosaic heavy hoppy lager and say, well, that's not really working. Um, and then, you know, what are we going to do about it? But then it turns out that, well, no, you can use mosaic. You just have to control the sulfur on the other side. So yeah. So basically Just mostly, warm, mostly warm, warm, on that mostly warm bass and, rest. Yeah. A little yeah. more, you know, depending on the yeast you're using something like 34, 70 is comfortable fermenting all the way up to 20 Celsius. Um, you know, which is people have proven, you know, in various ways with, you know, analysis and all that. Um, I think Fermentus did a really interesting study that we saw actually somebody from Fermentus presented it at, um, the, uh, California MBAA meeting we hosted a few years ago at Firestone where they had just done the study talking about how they could ferment it warm and basically, you know, analytically and sensory, like people couldn't tell. And, you know, obviously that's like one data point, one study, and it doesn't apply to everyone's breweries and how they make beer necessarily. But, um, it just, you know, it, it allows you to get a little more comfortable with it, I think, and say, Hey, you know, you can do this. Um, it's going to be okay. You know, it, if you're kind of, you know, cause I think with lager, we try to, we, we think of it as, um, you have to approach it a certain way, you know? So, um, but yeah, so there's kind of we, the we're bringing going. it full circle into busting lager myths here, and I love it. I love it. We brought it right back in. <laughs> yeah, but no, but just like uh, you know, on, to kind of round out IPA before that, I'll just say that yeah, it's. Um, I think we're trying to find like, I don't know. We we made a couple wine hybrid IPAs last year, which I really liked because that was a really Paso thing, and um, and we've been fermenting wine must a bit, um, especially with a, a rosé beer we developed before that, which we don't make anymore. Um, turns out the world wasn't ready, but, um, yeah, in an IPA, I think it, it could be really nice. And I think, you know, other, you know, um, breweries like, uh, the brewery right down here, um, in orange County, you know, I've done a lot of wine hybrids like that. Um, maybe not so much in the IPA realm. Um, 
but um listeners will need to listen in a couple of weeks because we have a conversation coming up with jeremy grinky from the brewery taru about wine beer hybrids so yeah stay stay tuned for that oh yeah i mean we you know being in wine country you know i think a lot of breweries yeah. in california yeah. it's, just, it's just a natural tie-in and it's it's really fun to do um i mean you've got to go in both ways because we have nick gislison of uh, screaming eagle and hanabi lager company who went from wine to making beer and now we've got you know folks that uh, uh you know like patrick rue of the founder of the brewery who now has a winery in napa and uh, you know it goes both directions and i love watching that dynamic and that kind of conversation back and forth between those because right it feels natural because wine is everywhere here you know, people love it as a beverage. They love the agricultural roots. It's something to be connected to in the same way that you all can stay connected to the fruit. I mean, it is the same. It is obviously it is a fruit. It is uh, a fermentable fruit. And, uh, you know, in the same way of building products that are relevant, you know, um, for your business because they're so connected, uh, you know, wine grapes provide a natural element to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I don't think I, it's such a limiting difficult fruit to work with i think on scale for a lot of people so there's just going to be a natural kind of limit to how um how popular that is but um you know it's kind of like well i guess fresh hop is getting easier but i was gonna say it's it's like the the northwest breweries how they can just drive to the hop field right throw the hops in the back of the truck and then go brew with it um you know and they can freeze the hops for you now you don't have yeah, to exactly uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know maybe uh maybe with wine hybrid stuff it's just the next uh it's just figuring out a way to stabilize that a little bit better so you know you can uh you can more easily work with it. Yeah, it's I I I there's a lot of um blue sky out there for folks to figure out. And, and you know, of course, I think that's the real challenge. Like how do you make those compelling beverages that are somehow better than either of their component parts? That's the problem that brewers are still trying to figure out. Can we make it? And, you know, or would this be a better wine um and a better beer separate and apart? Um I don't, you know, the number of solutions, the number of beers that I've tasted, the wine beer hybrids that have truly pulled it together. And I thought, oh, this is better than those components. It's pretty small, but at the same time, it, we're, you know, what were we half a decade into this, maybe seven years, eight years at the most, like, you know, wine's got a hundreds and hundreds of, you know, thousands of years of development to, to get where it is now. And so, um, as we keep following that and tracking that, I'm, I'm curious to see where it gets to from a, a broader kind of innovative you know perspective um what uh what's exciting you the most on your brewing side right now what are you learning and really challenging yourself with learning new ways of handling with hops and yeast and seeing how those um how the combination of of yeast and hops in different ways and you know kind of generally touching on the you know the kind of like hybrid of like you know making hoppier lagers or um, making different sorts of IPAs. It's like, um, you know, some of the stuff like, um, what's going on with like Berkeley yeast and, um, and Omega yeast labs doing some of their, um, you know, sure, genetically sure. engineered stuff where they're just, they're just completely different approaches and then learning how to, to reuse that stuff. So that's something we're kind of excited to get into. We're kind of like, we haven't really gone into it yet, but, um, that's a, there's a road I want to keep looking down. Um, but also, you know, with stuff like cryo, um, we've been a little bit late to the game, but you know, with the, with the batches that we have done with it, um, you know, it's, I mean, going back several years now, you know, a, a little bit here and there, but, um, just kind of, yeah, reapproaching, saying, okay, how can you use hops in a slightly different way? And how does this change how you can hit the flavor profile you want, you know, using hops in a certain way, um, just because they're different. Um, and that's something we also did, um, 
you know, and not just, I mean, you know, Yakima Chief, I think is doing a great job with Cryo and, um, and the other uh, hop companies are kind of doing similar stuff right now. But there's something with European hops that we've done for a bit is um, basically, you know, your more classic like T45, um, you know, getting the alpha up on some of these lower alpha hops, like something like, you know, Kalista uh, or Melon, um, which, you know, in that format, boosting the alpha a little bit, you might, you know, be able to get a little bit more concentration out of it, um, especially if you're shipping hops from Europe. Um, and, but, you know, but how removing some of the plant material allows you to approach a little bit differently because, you know, you're, what you're getting out of hops, there, there's a whole spectrum of things you're getting out of hops, right? You know, and part of it is, you know, are things that you don't want necessarily, um, sure. you know, some of the more stringent aspects, hopper and things like that. And so, um, there's, there's something definitely going on there. Um, you know, that you can approach things differently. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, that, that's really a big one for us because I think as time goes on, you know, IPA is not going anywhere. Um, so I think that's where a lot of our focus, um, remains. Um, but also, you know, on the other side is just, um, you know, on, you know, the lighter side, I mean, what's the next, you know, like obviously 805 is for us has been this, um, unique beer in that it's kind of like, it's carved out a a niche in the craft market that not too many brewers have. Um, and, you know, finding maybe, you know, where can that go? And that's, I mean, that's, that's a definitely a different approach than, you know, the hop game. Um, but it's, you know, what, um, what kinds of like more approachable beers connect with people and, um, and, you know, what's the next one of those, you know, so we, you know, kind of tentatively, you know, we did our second 805 extension, which is a, um, Mexican style lager brewed with lime. Sure. Sure. And, um, and that, you know, and same thing again, figuring out, okay, how are you going to use lime and, you know, how do you, you know, integrate that into the process? You know, so every new thing along the way is just like, you know, just one little new thing. But, um, but over time, you know, like I said, especially, you know, it's like adding a new hop into every new Leponic rotation. Um, but you know, in the end you look back and you've used 50 different hop varieties and you've learned a lot about them along the way. Well, Sam, I think that's a great place to uh, bring this to a close. I appreciate you talking with me about brewing today. GD Chillers knows that good enough just won't cut it. Sativa is ideal for aroma, whirlpool, and dry hop additions to hazy and juicy IPAs. Try fruit juice concentrates from Old Orchard. Pro Brew has the equipment, systems, and technology take your brewery production to the next level and make your system 100% food safe with Clarion Lubricants. Of course, if you'd like to support this podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button. And if you're a pro brewer, consider our new all access subscriptions. Of course, if you are a subscriber to Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, you can pop back in the archives available to you on the website and in the app and go read that June-July story that Sam wrote on busting lager myths right there in the magazine. Um, Because that is one of those benefits that comes with subscriptions. You can access our entire back library of content um, through all of our digital means. It's pretty cool. Um, Again, if you are coming out to CBC, hopefully we will see you on Thursday, September 9th, 3 to 5 p.m. at Beerstadt Lager House. Um, Sam, if people want to learn more about the, about Firestone Walker, I mean, I, the, people can find Firestone Walker, but the propagator in particular, um, this brew house that you call home here in Venice, California, where do they find a propagator and the propagator beers that you make? Well, we're very close to LAX. And so if you're ever flying in or out of LA, I think you should be our first or last, uh, stop, um, on your trip. And it was uh, my first stop flying right into LAX and right over here. 13 minutes, I think, from the from the rental car place to right here. Yeah, right up from the beach, right up from the Venice Boardwalk. So uh, come on by. Uh, you can keep up with what's on tap uh, on our website, firestonebeer.com. Uh, just click on the propagator section and um, you can see what we're doing. 
Thanks for joining me. It's been great to talk. Thank you, Jamie. Yeah, cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.